0: Welcome to the Fat Fuel Family Podcast, where every week Danny and Mauda Vega discuss topics that help families live a healthy and active lifestyle with their little ones, including nutrition and training, peaceful parenting, education, and mindset. To stay up to date, make sure to hit subscribe on this podcast and check out the blog at www.fatfuel.family. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram at dannyvega.ms, at fatfueledmom,
1: and at fatfueledkids, and fatfueledfamily on YouTube. Enjoy the show!
2: Welcome to the Fat Fuel Family Podcast. I'm your host and I'm joined by my carnivore wife, Maura. How are you, my love?
1: I'm okay. How are you?
2: Great. I've uh, been
1: better. My kids are destroying my house.
2: Yeah. So
1: I had a little bit of a rough.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I felt sorry. That.
1: I have to be I'm honest. I know. No, I, I, know. F- I
2: felt that. I felt that earlier. I was part of that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyways, we don't want to waste any time today. We have a really cool guest Um, Her name is Kara Collier. Kara is a registered dietitian, nutritionist and certified nutrition support clinician with a background in clinical nutrition, nutrition technology and entrepreneurship. After becoming frustrated with the traditional healthcare system, she helped start the company NutriSense, where she is now the Director of Nutrition. CARE is the leading authority on the use of continuous glucose monitoring technology, particularly in non-diabetics for the purposes of health optimization, disease prevention, and reversing metabolic dysfunction. CARE oversees the health team and product development and has personally interpreted thousands of complex Complex glucose sets. and I love that, um, and especially the fact that she has such a um, knowledge base with people who are non-diabetics. Because we're going to talk about all the ways that non-diabetics can use this. And by the way, also Maura is um, officially saying that she wants one of these, which is a big <laughs> deal, Kara, because she doesn't even like to prick her finger for um, <laughs> you know for the blood glucose monitoring. So
1: I'm already kind of taking issue with the fact that it's on me for so long because honestly the main thing is that it's
2: yeah it's it's, on me but and i don't like anything on me
1: i know i might deal with it just for like to we'll
0: definitely week. hook you up with like one. Yes, and it's easier
1: than the glucose meter because you don't have to pick
0: your finger. There's no pain or any sort of like
1: blood oh, draw. So absolutely. And also the my my issue with the the pricking my finger, like every time I go to do it, I hate it so much and like it, it's it gives me so much anxiety that of course my blood sugar comes out high. I'm like, well, yeah, I was yeah, really just stressed. sitting there for 30 <laughs> seconds. Like, like, am I gonna do it now? do I do it now? Like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'll this really will definitely that. give me a more accurate reading for sure. Well, we'll definitely hook you up with one. Awesome. Kara. Well, we always lead off with the question. What is the most critical problem you're currently trying to solve?
0: Yeah. So through my company NutriSense, I am trying to improve the metabolic health of population at scale. So I believe this is the most critical problem I could dedicate my career towards because the state of our metabolic health in this country is really, really bad. Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with the statistic that only about 12% of the US population are considered metabolically healthy.
2: Wow. And yeah.
0: the standards that they use for this statistic aren't even what I would consider optimal, they're just good. Um, so I would guess that that percentage is actually smaller than 12%. So it's an extremely big problem. Um, and to paint the picture a little bit more, Like you said, I am a registered dietitian, and I used to work in the hospital system. So primarily, I was working in ICUs, critical care nutrition, and it was a really eye-opening experience for me to see how big of a problem this is. Most of the time in the ICUs, I wasn't seeing people coming in with gunshot wounds or car accident traumas. I was seeing people coming in with complications of lifestyle-related chronic conditions, you know, they're coming in with yeah. a diabetic foot ulcer that now needs amputated, or they're coming in with fluid overload from congestive heart failure. All wow. of these very serious problems and a lot of unnecessary suffering because our metabolic health was in poor condition and because they're not taking care of yourself. And then the traditional healthcare system You know, they just address the symptoms, right? We're just going to do surgery on the infection and up your dose of insulin and send you home. Or we're just going to give you some dialysis, take the fluid off and send you home, right? So those root, root problems, the insulin resistance, the metabolic dysfunction, were never getting addressed. And it was so frustrating for me because you just see those people come back in 30 days later. And because it takes so long for these conditions to develop, that's 40, 50 years of bad habits that now you're trying to undo. It's a really hard time also to make behavior change. So from all those experiences, I helped start the company NutriSense um, with two other guys. And what we're trying to do is really get at the heart of these problems. Um, So we're using continuous glucose monitors as we kind of talked about so that you can see how your metabolic health Look, So you can see what's happening inside on your actual body, not, you know, generic advice, not a one size fits all diet, but actually what's going on inside of your body as to, you know, address metabolic health, but also address it early enough so we can fix problems because before, you know, we're way down the road and you're coming in with these complications. So super passionate about this problem and, and you know, working on this with Nutrisense and, and that's what we're really driving at.
2: Man, I am so happy to hear that. You know, it's it's first of all, I can see the I can hear the passion coming out in your voice. And um, you know, our good friend Mike, you know, he's he's Mike Mutzel, he's used Nutrisense mm-hmm. as well. He just posted today um that this this one study that talks about how COVID-19 and diabetes, you know, how one pandemic yep. worsens the other. And you know, you you mentioned that a lot of those um patients coming into the ICU were were, you know, for chronic stuff. Number one, we noticed that you know whenever we had to go to because we we generally stay away from the ER because we we think it's for emergencies you know so exactly yeah but like a lot of people it's not how it's being used unfortunately um we we go to like we would go to like the uh, urgent cares and the same things happening there like how am I going to fix my son's gash that needs stitches if there's their their waiting rooms are packed with people with these are all chronic conditions. They're not, yep. you know, your typical emergencies. Okay. But wouldn't you say, like, even even if someone comes in with a wound, I mean, if they have compromised uh, metabolic health, like you mentioned, like that eighty eight percent, you know that that was I think that was back in January or February this year. That study that that pointed that out.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, their their wound healing is going to be compromised, right? They're not going to. They're not. Oh, a hundred
0: percent. Yeah. And there's a huge link between the immune system and glucose control and general metabolic health. Um, In the ICU, I was getting consult requests all the time from the surgical team who will not perform a surgery on somebody whose glucose is too high because it's just too high of an infection
1: risk.
2: Yes, yes, yes. And we were we were we've mentioned that as well. With, um, you know, with metabolic health and COVID-19, because Mm -hmm. like, if, what do you think if people are saying pre-op, you cannot have a lot of sugar because of infections, what do you think that means for every day? Like, why would you be having all this, these blood sugar swings? Um, Man, it's crazy how it's like a, it's like a sniper weapon. You know, it's like a sniper rifle for all of these people. It just so happens that it's a really large group.
0: (laughs) Yes, a hundred percent agree. Um, now, I mean, it's always important to get metabolically healthy, but now it's especially important, right? There's a time crunch on it. Um, and I, if, you know, eventually COVID goes away, which who knows what's going to happen, but another pathogen is going to come one day. And like, are we going to be ready? We have to improve our metabolic health to be more prepared. We have to fix the inside so that we can deal with
1: whatever's coming at us on the outside world. And um, this is so important right now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping that's one of the positive things that comes out of COVID. I think it is happening. Like I see the gym pretty packed and I think people are starting to realize that it is important to be um, metabolically healthy. We're seeing it's a huge factor with mortality.
2: Yeah. And you know, I I will say this, I will say this until I'm blue in the face. I've already lost thousands of followers. I don't care anymore. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You don't see me out there you know, giving people crap for um, putting a, you know, bigger burden on healthcare for being unhealthy. Um, and, and, you know, I'm over here taking care of my body and my family, we're, we're taking care of our bodies. We are not making people feel bad for something that's much greater, a much greater factor in, you know, the transmission of the disease and even like, you know, how, how it affects you than, you know, washing my hands. I wash my hands all the time, first of all. And second of all, like, you know, the mask thing, you know, when you compare that to this problem, it's, it's, it's a drop in the bucket, you know, it's a drop in the ocean.
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, I wish this was like frontline advice, like maybe we'll get there one day, though, that and I also want people to know that they have control over their metabolic health. It's not this end game where it's like, oh, I already have diabetes. There's nothing I can do. You can absolutely make a difference today, right now, you know, just by going on a walk, going to the gym, reducing soda intake, some of these like big offenders, there are small things you could do right now that would make a huge difference. Mm. And, it, you know, if we could really emphasize that message and a mainstream effect, I do think it's definitely coming out in especially like our, our nutrition circle and in this world, it's not necessarily on frontline news, but I'm hoping that we get there if we're all kind of loud enough about this message. So I'm, well, thank I'm on goodness. your team. Yeah.
2: yeah. Thank goodness for that. I mean, I know that, um, England is, is, is having a little campaign there for, you know, against obesity and, and blood sugar mm-hmm. control. I don't know how well it's going to go. Like people, you know, I know that if they lower their calories, that's going to help, but it, you know, it's harder to do that if your sources are, you know, you know, causing these same blood sugar swings and and it makes it even harder to do it because you know from a compliance standpoint you know and from a psychological standpoint, your cravings are more um I mean what you said is great because I know that it's not a permanent thing, but as an adaptive response, you know insulin resistance can start to you can start to see reverses in two days just from those mm-hmm. things you talked about obviously you' got to keep doing it to really undo what you've done but I mean, two days, days—that's—that's that's, gives people a lot of hope.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you don't have to lose massive amounts of weight to necessarily fix what's happening on the inside. It's not like you have to, like we, we want you to keep working towards that, but you can make small changes that improves the metabolic health that's happening on the inside. And that's why it's helpful to have this type of data, to have reinforcement of, oh, wow, when I made that change, look how much it improved in just one day. When I started going on walks, fasted in the morning, look how much my glucose dropped. So when you can see that, that's immediate reinforcement, that that's a positive behavior, I should keep doing that. And it's not just some you know general recommendation I heard from someone and maybe it's working, maybe it's not. You know, We can't always tell what's happening if you don't have data to back it up. And that's why we're really big believers of data-driven behavior change, because we want people to see that this is effective right away and that increases intrinsic motivation to keep going with it, keep sticking with it. And that's consistency is what's going to be most helpful in the long run.
2: I'll be honest you know, I put mine on right now. Uh, I didn't have one since January, February. I think um, me and a few other people got like a bad batch because we were remember, I don't know. I wasn't talking to you back then. I was talking to someone who's not with you guys anymore, but um, we felt like something was off because the meter uh, I know that had nothing to do with NutriSense, but the the uh, Freestyle, the one that we had, like we were getting, Mike Mike was texting me like, hey, it was nice knowing you. Um, I'll probably be dead <laughs> soon. <laughs> and then and then Sylvia, uh biohacking chick, she was texting me too. And, and I was like, listen, it, it's not, actually she recorded a podcast with us and she was talking about how maybe MCT oil was causing some stuff. And I was like, I understand that you're concerned, but just know that I had these same issues. And they were like, 30 to 40 points higher than what my precision extra was telling me. Um, So there's always the, the, the risk of that, but um, you know, I'll tell you, like I put this thing on and, and honestly, like for me, it's also an added layer of, of accountability because if I have an issue at night, um, where like, I'm going to be, I'm hungry or I have cravings. I'm going to be like, you know what, this is going to drive up my, my fasted glucose It's going to mess with my sleep and my numbers are not going to look good. And my, my OCD is going to start bothering me. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I want to, I want to move just for a second. I want to just focus on you for a second. Cause, um, I'm always interested in hearing, you know, how different people approach stuff. So, um, can you kind of Tell us like how you approach nutrition throughout the year. Is there, are there things that you're doing in different seasons? You know, I I just love to get your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So um, my golden rule with nutrition is just whole foods always. So I try to eat as minimally processed as possible. So that's just kind of like big overarching goal when it comes to nutrition. And then I do, I guess I call it intermittent ketosis as opposed to like cyclical because I do it more so related to seasons, kind of just like you mentioned. So you almost just like prompted <laughs> me for that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Good. I feel the so, same
2: way. So,
0: yeah, I'm, I'm not anti-carb. I don't believe that whole food-based carbohydrates cause insulin resistance. I think that if you already have insulin resistance, it's like adding fuel to the fire. And you, you need to cut out those carbs if you're having any sort of metabolic dysfunction. But me as a very healthy person, I consume probably about 20 to 30% of my calories from carbohydrates. Most of the time, I really prioritize adequate protein, and then lots of healthy fats, not fat phobic. And I'm doing that most of the year. And then I'm usually timing my carbohydrates after exercise. So we're most insulin sensitive, most glucose sensitive right after an exercise, right? So I'm usually doing weightlifting and I'm eating most of my carbs after that, always during daytime hours. And then I will do like a two to three month um, strict ketogenic diet in the winter months usually. And I think that just kind of makes sense from a ancestral health standpoint, if we probably had less access to less lot of carbohydrate rich foods in the wear time, like, you know, fruit is not in season, things like that. So I think that's a good time for me to sort of switch it up. And then I might do like when lockdown first started and I wanted to be extra strict about things, I did about two months of strict ketogenic diet in the summer, even though I'm not usually doing it in the summer. So in certain situations where I really want to be extra vigilant, like I knew I wasn't working out as much, so I wanted to really dial in diet more. um, I might adjust that you know, depending on what's going on in my circumstances. But most of the time it's just like generally low carb, whole food diet. omnivore, I guess I have to preface with that nowadays, but <laughs> I, know, I hate, I hate plants preface. and animals. I don't really have any like GI issues and tolerances. So I tolerate most foods pretty well. So there aren't any things like I'm specifically avoiding. Um, I think, you know, it makes a lot of sense to cut out groups if, if you are having symptoms, but that doesn't really fortunately affect me. So that's my personal approach to nutrition and like kind of a Broad view. But I think it's really important just for the benefits of metabolic flexibility to always have times where you're in ketosis. Um, A lot of Americans are very carbohydrate dependent and they're never seeing any sort of amount of ketones in their system ever. And so I think, you know, if, if we think about what is metabolic flexibility, it's simply the ability for a cell or an organism to adapt fuel oxidation. So burning fuel for energy to fuel availability. So whatever you're putting in the system, your system can burn. And so, you know, we have two major fuel systems, fat and glucose, and we should be able to easily switch between those depending on our environment. I like to explain it as like a hybrid car. Um, You know, we could run on gasoline. We could also run on battery. And If I'm switching, you know, if I'm going up on the highway and I want to switch to something more energy energy efficient, I should be able to do that. And I think of that in the same way in our body. If I'm suddenly doing like um, high intensity exercise that's glycolytic, I should be able to switch to using glucose as my primary fuel and I should be able to do that easily. A lot of times with things like insulin resistance, metabolic disorders, they have poor switching, poor crosstalk in the body, and they're not able to do this process very well. So either Mm -hmm. you're never tapping into those fat stores, or it could also be in the opposite end of the spectrum where you're never putting carbs in your system and you can no longer really metabolize that carbohydrates very well. So for me, it's really important to just maintain metabolic flexibility. So I'm always trying to give my system both, you know, I'm not necessarily carbohydrate restricting all of the time, but I am some of the time. So
2: uh, that's I, sort of I my couldn't approach. agree. I couldn't agree more. I, I'll say I'll leave the, uh, the uh, metabolic flexibility topic for a later question, because we're going to get mm-hmm. into that. But I, I'll also just add that one of the things that I love, and I also I love to to add in carbs in the summer, like right now, I'm having, you know, four days out of the week, you know, two of them are are kind of like vertical diet type days. So they were like above 200 grams. And now I'm cutting down, I'm, I'm down to like 175, because I'm, I'm doing a cut. Um, and then like, on the other two lifting days, my carbs are like right around 100. And then the three days of the week is like, you know, ketogenic. And I mm-hmm. get to not only um, feel satiety in different ways, you know, from volume and fiber and things like that. Um, but I also find that um, from a hydration standpoint, because one of my snips um one of my mutations is is I'm, I'm more more prone to to um cramps and i just find mm-hmm. that it's just like an easy shortcut to help me with stress um with with cramps and of course it's an easy shortcut i talk about this as well you know helping people with stress you know you have you know elevated um cortisol, you have people that are, you know, eating very strict, they're doing intermittent fasting and going very, very hard. And their, their allostatic load is at a point where it's like, mm-hmm. they're about to burst. And, and it's getting to that point where it's just too much. And you just add in some carbs, you you know, you modulate cortisol and serotonin and all that. And you just feel good. So uh, I totally agree with that. 100%
0: Yeah. And the big thing I always tell people is that, you know, we're individualized, you lift a lot and you have a lot of muscle mass, So I'm sure your carbohydrate tolerance is way higher than the average person. So you have to titrate how many carbohydrates you can tolerate based off of, you know, how much lean body mass you have and how physically active you are. Um, For most people, the general carbohydrate recommendations of like 45 to 65% of calories, um, from carbohydrates. It's like really not going to work for like vast majority of people. I don't know why this is recommended as <laughs> for like the average American. The average so American sedentary. Doesn't, doesn't work out at all. And if you're eating 65% of your calories from carbohydrates, I promise you that's not going to look good. But <laughs> for most people, you can you know tolerate somewhere between you know 15 to 30% and do okay. For somebody who's really active or training a lot, an athlete, you might be able to do a little bit more and not have any sort of glucose dysregulation. If you're really sedentary, maybe you're injured or something, you might want to cut that down. So, you know, at the end of the day, they're personalized. And I I love your approach. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I agree. You can feel good in both ways. You can feel good running off of mostly ketones and fatty acids, you could feel good running mostly off of glucose and you should be able to switch from that pretty easily. So hundred percent agree with your approach.
1: Love it. Love that. I'm just curious. What do you eat when you, um, like post-workout? What do you eat when you eat carbs? When you say you eat carbs? Yeah,
0: that's a great question. And what I used to eat is a lot different than what I eat now that I've worn so many CGMs because (laughs) we have really unique responses to food, Um, this always blows my mind. So, you know, when it comes to whole foods that you think most people are going to do pretty well with, like you kind of go off a glycemic index, maybe that turns out to not be that predictive of how you're going to respond. Like, for example, I have another dietitian on my team who's very similar, like um, activity levels, me age, and we tolerate totally different with foods. Like I barely have any glucose increase from bananas and it's one of her biggest glucose spikers. For me, starchy vegetables really give me a huge glucose spike. So wow, sweet, sweet potatoes, like butternut squash, um, those are consistently give me the highest glucose spike. So I used to eat a lot of starchy vegetables and I don't inherently think they're bad for you. I think we all just have unique responses to food based off of epigenetics and microbiome and, you know, all these other factors that we probably don't even know what's going on. But for me, they consistently give me a huge glucose response. So I mostly stick to fruit. Um, I do eat some legumes that has carbohydrates and mostly fiber, Um, don't have any issues really digesting them. And then I will do steel cut oats a lot of times after my workout because I just like them. They make me feel really good and I have very little glucose response to them. So those are some of my go-to and some of the um, tubers, root vegetables that aren't as starchy, like I do a lot of carrots and beets, some things that, you know, have some carbohydrates in them, but not quite as starchy as like a sweet potato. Actually, white potatoes work better for me. So I do some of those. Um, but those are some of the carbs that seem to work better for me. And it's just come with trial and error, testing different things, seeing how it looks, um, to see, see which ones
1: I tolerate the best. Well, now I'm really interested in doing the, uh, continuous, um, blood glucose monitor, because that's so true. Like we all probably have different, different, um, glucose responses to certain foods and that I actually would want to know is uh, which carbs right are give me the le- the you know the lesser spike. So that's and super it's, interesting.
0: It's hard to know unless you're measuring it. And it's hard to catch on a glucose meter because yeah, You're not really sure when that maximum spike is going to happen. Sometimes it happens super fast. It's like within five minutes, like you could get lucky and catch it, but you never really know for sure. So when you're seeing, you know, the continuous data, you can see the whole curve and the whole response and get a better idea of, you know, what exactly is happening. I like to do, I like to prompt in our customers, what is just like, you know, controlled carbohydrate tests. So we'll call it like the 30 gram carbohydrate test. Cause that's like a very reasonable portion size. So you can consume 30 grams, total carbohydrates of different foods on an empty stomach. First thing of the day to really isolate that and see how you respond to that food. Um, so I've done that with, you know, I don't know how many foods, but (laughs) once you've done it enough, you really start to like dial in of which ones are working better than others. And some are really surprising and some are, you know, make more sense, but I've always been consistently surprised. Like I've tried just about every fruit
1: that I like. And so you're saying to do it, in the morning, like the best time to do it is, is going to be in the morning, like on an empty stomach or something like to, to find yeah, out just, what's your actual, like a real response, not like, right. Right.
0: Yeah. Just for testing purposes of okay. like seeing it in an isolated situation. Um, It's obviously not very representative of what you might be doing in real life. Then you can incorporate it in like a mixed meal or after a workout. But if you really want to see, you know, not what is the effect of your glucose after a workout or mixed with other meals, it's easiest if you're doing it on an empty stomach in the morning by itself. So you can really isolate that variable.
1: Okay, cool. Good to know. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I love that you are helping people who aren't diabetic and educating them on how to use um, their, you know, continuous glucose monitors to learn more about their metabolism. I'm sure our listeners would love to learn, you know besides what we've just spoken about, but a few more ways they can use their glucose monitors, um, along with NutriSense to learn more about their bodies. Can you give a few examples and share, uh, you know, what type of info these would give them?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that I think is really interesting about glucose is I like to call it a newest vital sign because it's not just telling you about, you know, how you respond to carbohydrates or how you respond to food. But it's also glucose changes in relation to stress, like you talked about at the beginning. And it also tells you a lot about sleep. So those are two big areas. I'm actually talking about stress and sleep probably more than I'm talking about food half the time with our customers because it's just such an issue for so many people. But glucose is going to rise for acute stress. You know, if you're having a fight, if you're stressed at work. It's going to spike just like you ate a bunch of carbs, but it's also going to gradually increase in your overnight and fasting values if you're just chronically stressed. So stress, of course, stimulates cortisol, which increases our glucose endogenously. So it it stimulates the liver to create more glucose. And so a lot of times when people are waking up with a higher glucose level, higher fasting glucose, that is usually an indication of cortisol or stress. Which poor sleep and adequate sleep is also a stress around the body. So both of those things can really drive up those overnight and fasting glucose levels. So that's something that a lot of people realize that was maybe hard to quantify before you have the data. Um, so talking about stress and sleep a lot. Uh, the other big thing is just assessing where you stand with your metabolic health. So you know we can see unique responses to food, of course, but we can also get a better idea of. Am I showing any signs of insulin resistance? What's going on? Um, you know, if you want to know if you're insulin resistant or not, there's not like one test where you go to the doctor and it's like your insulin resistant test. It, that doesn't exist, you know, in research studies, you can do what's called like a hyperinsulinemic insulinemic euglycemic clamp, but it's very invasive and it's really only used in research settings. So other than that, we have to look at the big picture of what's going on um, and how you're responding on CGM data is one of our best indicators of insulin resistance. But you also, you know, you wanna look at HDL triglycerides, waist circumference, some of these other factors, but CGM data is one of your best ways to tell. So a lot of people who really wanna know, am I insulin resistant or not? We can do a glucose challenge test. So we could do at home 75 grams of total carbohydrates that's about like four and a half tablespoons of honey or about 350 grams of white potatoes. You can try this and then we can see how your glucose response looks to a large glucose load. So we want to see that peak glucose value below a certain threshold. We wanna see a small area under the curve, not this long prolonged glucose response. And then we wanna see it come back down to normal within two to three hours. So a lot of people are doing these glucose tolerance tests with the data to just see you know, am I showing signs of any insulin resistance, impaired glucose tolerance? Because a lot of times, you know, in traditional labs, a fasting glucose or hemoglobin A1C, you might not see these issues for 10, 15 years. If there is some issues going on in the background, it's not going to show up on these traditional lab markers for quite a while. And so this is an easy way to like spot any yellow flags, before they become real issues so we can identify issues super early on so that's that's a big thing we're working on as
2: well with people I love that I love it so much you know I've I've learned so much on on these topics about my body Um, it's a perfect segue to the next question too because um, first I'll tell you like when I 2017 I did a 50,000 meter row for charity and it had been you know a year and a half that I had been on a ketogenic diet and I had already been on a carnivore diet for several months and Mm -hmm. um, you know I wanted to to really feel well so I I had like the the night before the day before I had 300 carbs and then the day of I woke up I did the first like 30,000 meters fasted and by the time I got off, oh, back up. When I woke up, I was at, you know, 102. So my, my blood <laughs> sugar was elevated. But when I got off that first 30,000 meters, I was like, my blood sugar was 84. My ketones were already at 0. 0.5. And then I had a big, not, you know, big relatively for keto. I had an 80 gram carb meal. And I, you know, the next time I did, you know, a, a 15,000 meter piece. It was like, I came back, my blood sugar had dropped to 79 and my ketones had gone up to like two. And then the last one, my blood sugar had dropped in the sixties and my ketones went up to 4.4. And yeah. And the same thing happened this year. Like this year I did the same thing that maybe like 250 grams a day before. And this time around I would do 50 grams of carbs after each session. And the same thing happened where throughout the day, even though I was ingesting more carbs you could tell that there was absolutely no lag time like as soon as those glycogen stores you know were were you mm-hmm. know done i went straight into fat burning because as the day went on even with continued you know more more carbs my my blood sugar would go down and my ketones would go up and i think this is such important information that the type of people that'll say like well i don't need carbs and and i get it you you don't technically but like i'm not trying to just be normal. I'm trying to be like the mm-hmm. best I can be, you know? So, um, going back to that, cause this is a related topic, you know, this, this question keeps popping up, you know, in fact, I told you this morning I was tagged on it. Um, and this idea of physiological insulin resistance, or I, I just prefer the term glucose intolerance because it just, to me, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe you can provide some information on this part, but like, it doesn't seem like it's an issue where too much insulin is being kicked out. It's, it's actually an, is, an issue probably that the pancreas is like half asleep. Cause there's, there's not much going on with insulin. And, you know, like I saw when I first started including some carbs back in, um, you know, last January, 2019, January, the first couple week or so, my blood sugar control was gone. Like I was like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. I used to have so much predictability and, you know, you talk about metabolic flexibility, those, those carbohydrates are not going to my muscle cells if they're in my blood. And so I'm not able to efficiently use them. And I found that not only when I've, when I've just incorporated those carbs seasonally or strategically when I need them, not only do I get, I get lower baseline glucose, which is interesting. And I also even postprandial, it's almost like my body's more primed. So um, let's see, you know, Tell me about you know what you think about this because you I know you've done some work with some of the clients on physiological insulin mm-hmm. resistance and and what has been working for them um in you know in all the different um, examples because you have some people that maybe they're so insulin resistant it, maybe it doesn't make sense for them to to to, to include carbs I'm just kind of curious what 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 goes on with different types of people
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this isn't something I thought very much about before I started this company, but then when I was seeing tons of people's data and it started coming up over and over and over, it's something I've dove in a lot since. So the idea of physiological insulin resistance is exactly what you said. So I usually start to see this happen after at least a year of very strict no to very little carbohydrates coming into the system. And so if you think about this, the body is super adaptable. It is always going to adapt to its environment. And if you are never putting carbohydrates or outside glucose into the system, it's going to learn, okay, I'm I'm never getting glucose. So I don't have to be as insulin sensitive, right? I don't need to use insulin as much because I'm never getting carbs. So it's going to lower your fasting insulin. And then it's also going to reduce peripheral insulin sensitivity. So That's normally like our muscles. They're super insulin sensitive. They love to take up glucose, but if it's never getting glucose from outside, we're going to reduce that insulin sensitivity. And then we're also going to raise fasting glucose. So the body starts making more glucose from the liver in order to compensate for this, because we have very glucose sensitive organs, right? The brain loves glucose. And if it's, sensing that glucose is never coming in it's going to compensate by raising the endogenous glucose production so what i was seeing over and over in customers was these people who have been very strict keto for two three years they're seeing the slow rise in their fasting glucose levels so it used to be in the 70s and then it was in the 80s and now it's in the 90s and then for some people seeing it in the hundreds 110s 120s which is technically like pre-diabetic diabetic levels But interestingly, like you said, insulin is very low as opposed to insulin resistance that comes with diabetes. You see a high fasting glucose, but you also see a high fasting insulin. So it is different in the sense that the only thing that's changing is that this fasting glucose is rising. So essentially, and like you said, we can see this when people do a glucose tolerance test. This is very well documented in the research. I'm somebody who's been without carbs for a long time. If they do an oral glucose tolerance test, you're going to get a false alarm and you're going to be labeled as diabetic if you don't let them know I've been eating low carb. So, and then normally if you eat about three days of 100, 150 grams of carbohydrates, this goes away and you do the oral glucose tolerance test and you have a normal result. So it does show that this is reversible and it's not the same as pathological insulin resistance, like what's happening with diabetes. So the big question of like, is this bad? Is this natural adaptation a bad thing? You know, that's still a question mark. If you're maintaining low levels of insulin and all these other markers, you know, HDL, triglycerides, waist circumference, all of this is looking good. It's probably okay. We don't necessarily have signs or um, evidence that you're having mitochondrial dysfunction or, you know, elevated insulin, glycation or any of these other problems that come with high fasting glucose. But to me, it is a signal that you are metabolically inflexible now, like we talked about, right? You're never gonna be able to tolerate a big load of carbohydrates very well and oxidize that, get rid of it out of the blood system. So if you're somebody who feels like you're, you don't want any more carbohydrates, you're like completely okay with never, you know, cheating or having a big load of carbohydrates, then maybe this is okay. But for a lot of people, I was seeing that most of the time they are very strict, um, low carb. And then on the weekend or somebody's birthday, they'll have cake and a hamburger and french fries and they'll have glucose up to the 300s for four <laughs> hours, you know, because their body does not know how to tolerate this glucose anymore. So if, if you're somebody who every once in a while you want to be able to have carbs and tolerate it well, which to me makes a lot of sense, then we might wanna get this under control. So long story short, what I have found to work the best is a couple things. One is including carbohydrates every once in a while, just like you said. So not these huge um, cheats at the birthday party, right? But instead like a hundred grams after a hard workout of whole food based carbohydrates, including that every once in a while teaches the body that, okay, every once in a while you're giving me glucose and I know how to tolerate it now and I don't have to freak out that glucose is never going to come in. Right. I know that every once in a while you're giving me some carbs. So that works really well. Um, an earlier time restricted eating window also works really well for these people. A lot of times if we're eating really late, this is also, um, misaligning with our circadian rhythm and altering natural insulin sensitivity. We're most insulin sensitive during daytime hours. Um, we're least insulin sensitive in the middle of the night. We're not designed to be eating at 2 AM. Right. So having that earlier time restricted eating window really helps. And then increasing lean body mass, making sure you're doing strength training, lots of exercise and movement throughout the day, avoiding sitting all day. Those three things, exercise, early time restricted eating window, and then cycling some carbohydrates in when appropriate that helps to lower that fasting glucose value. And then suddenly when you do have a bunch of carbohydrates coming in, you can actually tolerate it because you've taught your body that it's okay. I'm not in this adaptive state.
2: You know, uh, that's, that's a really good point. And, but one of the things that I was thinking of too, when you were mentioning, you know, people doing it for over a year, um, I noticed that I had, and it's kind of unrelated, it's unrelated to, to the glucose piece, but it's, I think it's related because people should know especially if they're trying to lose weight and everybody's always trying to, you know, burn some extra Mm -hmm. fat. Um, I noticed like I had this one Canadian client who she was very um, diligent at the time, not with continuous glucose monitors, but with just a regular blood monitor. And um, she was like, you know, my, my, my regular readings were like, you know, after several months of keto got down to like, you know, 4.8 millimoles, which is what, like in the low 80s something mm-hmm. like that mid low to mid eighties. And, um, and then what she found was like after over a year, they started to drift back up again. And, um, and she was eating a high fat approach. And so I started to think to myself, you know, cause one of the things that, um, for instance, Ted Naiman talks about is mm-hmm. how, you know, if you have a, a cell that's replete with energy, it doesn't matter if it's glucose or, um, fat, it's going to reject both. And so there, there could be, um, higher fat approaches could also possibly drive that insulin resistance. And I just heard that from him once. So I th- I figured I'd try it with her. And I noticed that her blood sugar was coming back down from just lowering the fat. Have you, have you, um, looked into that at all?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So as, as much as I don't think calories are all encompassing, but it they do they still are important, right? They have a place. And if we are overloading the system with too much energy, you're exactly right. The system is going to reject it. It doesn't want to be overloaded with energy. And so you're gonna see, you know, oxidative priority is basically the body's prioritizing different pathways. And if we have too much energy, we're going to reject that as being oxidized and we're going to store it instead, right? And so I'll, I do see and I think there's probably this is related to like epigenetics, genetics, different SNPs. people have some people just don't seem to tolerate really high fat diets as well. Yeah. Um, so there is some evidence, too, that it's just it's just not a one size fits all diet. So I see this where people will switch to a high fat diet and they feel pretty good, but glucose is rising. And if we include, sometimes you need just a really small amount of carbohydrates and titrate that fat down just a little bit, then that corrects it. So sometimes people need just 50 grams of carbohydrates a day, which is way less than most people, you know, standard American is getting, but for some of these people, it seems like a lot. But yeah, because it's, it's enough- they don't know
2: any other way. That Their first foray right. into nutrition was keto and it, it worked. So they were like, everything else is terrible.
0: <laughs> and it's scary to try something else then when you had success with something. Yeah. Um, you don't want to take away that thing that felt good and helped you. Um, but sometimes we have to tweak it just a little bit to get then to that next level of optimization. Like we, a lot of times, I think when you're switching from standard American diet to this more clean eating, whole foods, high fat, you're removing all this bad. And so you feel really good and you're going to make a lot of strides, but then maybe we have to tweak it based off of how you individually are responding. For some people, it's a little bit more carbs. And for some people, it's not. Some people do much better with really no carbs in their system. Um, You know, especially somebody who's actually showing real insulin resistance, even early stage, I'm going to want to cut those carbs a lot because again, that's like, fire that's fuel we're only making it worse we have to correct that before we can add in any carbohydrates and that takes time and that takes a lot of effort
1: but it's definitely doable okay because I am one of those people that goes I I'm, I'm just a creature of it's my healthy. routine of yeah. my habits so mm-hmm. Like we had planned at one point to do carb ups and I would literally forget because like once I'm doing my thing during the week, like I eat the same thing I like, I like to eat the same thing every day because I just don't want to think about it. So Mm -hmm. I literally would forget to carb up. But my question is how, you know, so I, I do definitely believe that they do help me. So like I've had to, you know, incorporate carbs around my cycle. Um, And definitely post ovulation, it's definitely helped me I think it's because uh, what does Ali call it like the whole leptin thing. Oh, she thing? calls it
2: leptin depletion. Okay. Yeah, like lean, um, lean women mm-hmm. who follow a low carb diet or fast. Lead. Yeah,
1: my cycle was coming real short. Yep. And so to help me push it out, she said to do some, you know, post ovulation carbs, and they really do help me. But um what you're saying with, you know, introducing carbs every so often, like how often would you say? Oh, that's a
2: good question. Cause yeah. that's, that's
1: what I'm thinking. Like, cause I am strict low carb and I just feel best that way. But I do think that I do have times where to manage stress or whatever it is that I might need to incorporate it. So I'm just wondering like how often you think we should do that if I'm running low carb most of the time.
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. And again, you know, I, I think it looks different for right. certain people, Um, if you're really physically active, I think you can do it on a weekly basis and that's, that's no big deal. So it could be like twice, twice a week on the weekends. If that's easier, you're in a different routine and then maybe it triggers, you know, a different habit to try some on the weekend. I would definitely always encourage it during daytime hours. We don't want to be eating carbs late in the evening, but for some people who aren't as physically active, if they're doing those carb ups on a more regular basis, then they're going to see these huge glucose excursions because their body isn't used to having those carbs and it's overreacting still. So instead for those people who maybe aren't as physically active, we might do longer stretches of like two months of generally low carb and then two months of really low carb and getting into ketosis um, and do longer stretches. So the body has time to kind of adapt and get used to it. There is muscle memory, just like you know, if, if you've been working out for a long time and then you aren't with the gym, because maybe there was uh, stay at home orders. And then suddenly you go back, you're going to pick up that muscle memory way faster than the very first time when you were training the ver- very first time you're going to the gym. It's the same thing with our metabolic health. We have metabolic memory. And so if you've trained your system to runoff of ketones, and then also be able to utilize glucose, we can switch more quickly. So those people who are pretty metabolically flexible and have trained that system, you can do a carb up one day a week, couple days a week and do it on a more quick basis and your body can switch in and out. Just like you were talking about, Danny, you are able to have this huge glucose load and then just a couple hours later have high ketone levels. You're metabolically flexible. You're able to switch that quickly. For those people who really were still working on metabolic flexibility, maybe you have a lot of inflammation or very overweight and your body just has a harder time switching. We might want to give it more time. So it's like a a whole month of of just like moderate carbohydrate and then a whole month of teaching your body to utilize fats and ketones. Um, So I'm not sure if that answered your question specifically. Yeah, but it kind of matters on how metabolically flexible you are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That definitely answers it. And I was definitely thinking much more time in between. So that helps me because you definitely said more often than I thought. So (laughs) that's good to know.
2: Yeah. That's, that's really good because um, yeah, I mean, honestly, like it's just one of those things that I think, like I said, you know, it's kind of like people who've never worked out before they do CrossFit and then they think (laughs) CrossFit's the only thing. And the same thing with keto. And like, I don't want people to think that I'm out here, like, bashing keto. I love love it. I mean, I am ketogenic. And, and to your point, like when you, when you're so fat adapted, like I am, I can regularly, like in the summer, I I haven't been doing the carb ups this summer. Like I did last summer where I'm going up to like 300 grams, which is big for Mm -hmm. me, but like, I, there's never been one time, not once, at least on a morning fasted ketone reading where I've been out of ketosis after those carb up days. Like I'm always at least 0.5, which is just crazy. <laughs> it's, uh, it, yeah. it goes to that point. The body just knows. It's like, listen, we're going to stay right here. We're comfortable. Let's not change yeah. it. Probably it would take like, you know, a month of like eating that way every day. What have been, um, so what have been some of the most interesting findings that you've had working with NutriSense customers? Because I mean, you, I'm sure you see all types of people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It has been super interesting. And one thing that is important to note is that there really hasn't been very much research on continuous glucose data in non-diabetics. So when we started this, you know, it was kind of like the Wild West. It was like, what are we going to find? What's normal? What's not normal? There wasn't a lot of research to rely on. And then since then, now we've seen so many people that we've learned a lot just from experience and seeing real life data in in real settings as opposed to a clinical setting. And there's quite a few things that were really surprising. I, I think a big one is just how unique we all respond to foods. The glycemic index is not a great predictor. Um, the other big one was what we already dove into the physiological insulin resistance with ketogenic diets, just the importance of that metabolic flexibility. Um, but I've also seen a lot of gender differences. Mm. Um, yes, which has been really interesting, especially around fasting. And I think we, we touched on this a little bit with like allostatic load, but we, we started to notice that women who are doing like lean women um, with low body fat percentage already really physically active. Um, you know, a, lo- a couple other stressors going on good stressors, but too many stress, too many stressors going on can be a bad, bad thing. Right. And yes. when you start to have a really restricted eating window, then that can maybe push that threshold. So, we started to see this a lot around OMAD. So, one meal a day specifically oh, yeah. in women. Um, I never saw any sort of detrimental effects in men, but these women who are lean, relatively healthy, super active, really paying attention to all these other factors, you know, trying to do sauna and cold therapy and all these other hormetic stressors, when they're doing OMAD and they're just eating this one hour That's window. Me really well, <laughs> that's me i need to chill
1: with the stress Tell, tell her about uh, the last oh my three gosh fast, the it fast. was so bad but like i knew it too like i knew it was yeah, gonna I happen felt it. like okay i did the 72 hour fast um it was like the second night night times are always hard for me because mm. everybody's eating in my house i have no <laughs> problems fasting all day i could literally fast all day every day probably for the rest of my life and i'm not feeling yeah. it. but when it comes to the night time like that's it it's like for me or like just dinner time 5 p.m everyone's eating so I, you know how it is when you're fasting, you want to stay busy. You're like, what can I do? Yeah. Like, what can I do? So I, I was like, this is probably not a good idea, but I'm going to just go in the sauna. Yeah. Oh man. Oh, no. Like immediately, <laughs> like, you know, when you just feel your I adrenals, you like I was like, Oh, my blood glucose. Yeah, a bit. Like my body was just like, yeah. And you're dying. <laughs> yeah. just yeah, like breaking down. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. No bueno. I, I can totally see how that happens with the, uh, with the woman. Um, I'm going to let you continue but I I do also want to put this in your ear and and, because we know like going back to the stuff that has research like specific um, sweeteners like have a lot of research behind them that 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 they do drive you know glucose I know that Mm -hmm. some some people do well with this one and not with that one but um I just you know when you're done telling me all these other ones i'd I'd be curious if there's any you know um consensus as far as like what you're seeing with specific uh non caloric sweeteners too
0: yeah absolutely so yeah, just touching on the the fasting with women a lot of times we would see where you know at 18 hours of fasting, you should see glucose in that fasting glucose range, like 70 to 90. It should be resting right about there. But a lot of women would be seeing these, this fasting glucose rise the longer they're fasting, which is the opposite of what should be happening. And that's a signal that the body's under a lot of stress and it's stimulating too much cortisol, and it's stimulating that gluconeogenesis in the liver. Um, so I started to see this, and it's not every woman, um, you know, it's, it's like a 50-50 mix in this specific subset of like lean, healthy women. But a lot of people were not responding well to this uh, type of eating and really restricted eating window. So that was sort of a big surprise. And same with extended fast, it didn't always work well for women when I rarely saw that issue. For men, and I, I think it just comes down to women maybe have a different allostatic load than men, and we are triggered by you know low body fat percentage, um, stress threshold, and lack of nutrients coming in that triggers a higher stress response in us because we are meant to reproduce, and that is a really stressful environment for a woman's body. So that's something we saw a lot that was sort of interesting. Related to the sweeteners, yeah, we have seen it as really a mixed bag, both sweeteners and coffee, caffeine are two things where it's kind of like, you know, flip a coin, how you're going to respond. Some people, a lot of coffee also kind of stimulates that stress response. And they're seeing a glucose spike with even just black coffee in the morning on an empty stomach where other people it's even decreasing glucose a little bit or keeping it steady. It's the same thing we're sort of seeing with artificial sweeteners. And there's a lot of evidence that artificial sweeteners are stimulating an insulin response. And so, if you're not eating any actual the carbohydrates, sugar, yeah. Yeah, then you might stimulate that insulin. And so, your glucose might not go up, it might actually go down, but that could be a signal that it's stimulating insulin. And then that insulin is dropping glucose, which is what insulin is supposed to do. Right. But we don't necessarily want to be stimulating insulin when we're trying to be in a fasted state and we're not trying to trigger these growth pathways, which insulin is an anabolic hormone. Um, so we are seeing that across the board. And then there's a lot of these, like, you know, keto products or low glycemic products where it's like, you know, they have a bunch of weird fibers in there and they're saying that you're not going to have a glucose response to it. And it's keto friendly. And we've seen a lot that most of those are not true. Um, yeah. it's really disappointing because I feel like it's just like deceitful and for yeah. food marketing, but I see this a lot. Like there's a few specific brands too, where it's just like, it's like, I know somebody is going to have a glucose spike when they eat that, even though it's marketed as like low glycemic or supposed to be no, no glucose response. So a lot of those food products, you really can't trust the like weird artificial fibers or artificial sweeteners. So at the end of the day, I think it's really best to go as whole food, natural as possible, but it is kind of like a flip of the coin of how you might respond.
2: Man, that, that makes a ton of sense. Like I, I, I don't beyond like, you know, the, the, the anabolic component of the insulin, which is of course, over time going to be bad for them. You're going to feel terrible. If you go Mm -hmm. hypo, you know, you get hypoglycemia, you know, from, from a non-caloric sweetener. And that's why it's like, I'll say, you know, with coffee, sometimes with me, I'll I'll notice that if I test after coffee, like I do see a spike, um, and you know, I'm I'm wondering it's probably just the caffeine, right? Because of maybe I'm a, a, at You're that time. Well, I'm a slow metabolizer, but it's also maybe I'm in a heightened state, you know, where I'm already a little bit stressed. Right, right. That's another thing. Like right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, think I it depends on your
0: environment. Yeah. Of like what sort of stress response you're in, in the moment. Sometimes we're like chugging coffee as we're trying to get some work done and we're already kind of stressed. You're on the phone with someone and you're freaking out. And so you're having this like amplified stress response as opposed to like, you're, you're in a relaxed state. It's Saturday morning. You're like, you're slowly drinking a cup of coffee and you're totally relaxed. That might be a different scenario.
1: Okay. So our next question do you all have any plans to expand into different types of like different types of diagnostic testing or any other ways people can learn more about their health and metabolism and metabolism? Yeah,
0: absolutely. So we started with continuous glucose monitoring because really just like in the, you know, terms of like 80, 20 rule, it covers a lot of what's happening in metabolic health, um, to be able to see glucose, but it's, only part of the picture. And it's not the only metric we want to measure. Eventually our goal, our primary goal is to solve that problem. I talked about in the beginning of really driving at understanding and fixing your metabolic health. So we have a lot of plans to just be the centralized location for all metabolic related markers. So you can understand them in one place and they have very sophisticated analytics that are telling you how they all correlate together. So what we're working on right now, that'll be kind of like the next thing released in actually a couple weeks is to be able to graph like a ketone graph on top of your glucose. And you can see them in comparison. You could do like the glucose ketone index. You could also just see them stacked on top of each other. So right now you can manually enter ketones into the system and it comes in just a dot on your glucose graph, but we're working right now to make that a more integrated system. And then eventually we're going to have um, the ability within the app to order any lab you might want to, just like any, or the, any other um, at-home lab testing. But that way it's all in one system and you can correlate it against your glucose and against your ketones. And you can see what a fasting insulin looks like in comparison to that and track it over time. So we have a lot of different goals, but we want to have all these health metrics in there eventually. But what we're tackling right now is, is a more sophisticated system to be able to see glucose and ketones right next to each other.
2: I absolutely love that. I love, I'm a big fan of, and, you know, I I was talking about this last Friday with a friend of mine who's, you know, he's military. So he's, he's very, very by the book, very, you know, just, you know, very meticulous. And I'm the same Mm -hmm. way. And you should see the type of things that we do to overlay things on each other, on top of each other. (laughs) Like, like we really, there's no, there's not a lot out there, you know? So you really have to like, it's
0: not easy right now.
2: No, not at all. It has to be manual. And it's like, you know, you, you have to basically like, honestly, I will, I will make things the same size and I will put them on top of each other. That's like the only thing. So that'll be a great solution because you know, we, we focus on so few things and it's the whole, you know, Dunning-Kruger effect, you know, people learn a little bit and they think they know everything. And then as you start to learn more, you're like, Oh, wait a second, you know, C-peptide and, you know, insulin and, you know, all Mm -hmm. these different things that, that we don't usually test, but maybe we should, you mentioned before, you know, it could take, you know, two decades before someone shows, you know, elevated blood glucose. But at that point, they are very, you know, insulin um, resistant. So exactly. uh, this is all good stuff. So I mentioned this a little bit earlier, like talking about, I don't know if we talked about this before we got on the air or after the air, but like, you know, some of the things that I do with clients who, you know, maybe they have a fat loss stall and, you know, I ask them to take some fasted glucose readings and then do a few things like maybe three days of that. And then three days of consistently like taking something like berberine with their meals and you know walking after dinner after their last meal um and and we see that that their progress resumes and we see also like that you know i'll give an example for example one guy who was like you know maybe he 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 gives me his baseline it's like you know 102 101 and then like literally three days later of doing what we just mentioned you know, we're in the high eighties, low nineties, it's crazy. And then, and then sure enough, like the next three weeks, he he averages like a loss of like two point something pounds a week. So um, have you on this side, because I know what we're doing here is everything is descriptive, but um, based on what, what's working for people. And I know that you, you know, part of your role is to also be prescriptive. So, you know, do you have any ideas that, that people can maybe implement where, Maybe they they can either I don't need, I don't know if they can target you know um, fasted glucose readings or 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 ways that they can see how to you know just get better at glucose disposal just little ideas that 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 can improve you know how someone how someone's body manages sugar and and use it uses it for energy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So sort of the really, really big thing that we're talking about all the time is that earlier time-restricted eating window. So both kind of closing in on how often you're eating, but also shifting it a little bit early. Um, A lot of people are starting their first meal at like 6 p.m. and ending it at 11 p.m. I find this very common, like people will fast all day and then they'll eat pretty late. And then they'll have these really high fasting glucose values in the morning. And this is the idea of um, chrononutrition. So it's aligning our circadian rhythm and our nutrition. So, you know, I think I touched on this a little bit, but we have these peripheral clocks all over our body that are sensitive to the cues. We're giving on the outside. So, you know, a big example is light exposure, right? So, yes. light exposure is what's stimulating melatonin. It's helping us feel sleepy at night. So, if we're, we're bright lights all night long, we're not going to stimulate that as well. If we're never getting outside and seeing any sunlight, we're going to alter that routine. The same thing with food, meal timing can also affect your circadian rhythm. So if you're eating super late at night, you're not as insulin sensitive, you're going to have higher glucose excursions, but you're also not going to sleep as well. And there's this misalignment between circadian rhythm and meal timing and meal choices. So we're talking a lot about this early time restricted eating window. Um, But the other big thing is just a little bit of movement throughout the day. So either a walk after meal or standing after meal. So a lot of people are working from home now, I recommend that if you just have any sort of high countertop or shelf that you could put your laptop on and work for like standing for at least 30 minutes after a meal, that actually can have a significant improvement in your glycemic response just by not being in the super sedentary sitting position all day and especially after meals. So Trying to break up the day with small walks, standing, it can be these small things, even these frequent, um, like five minute bursts of energy. So it's like if you've been sitting for two hours, do you know 20 push ups, 20 sit ups, and that's going to make a difference. Just these couple minute bursts of energy um, that can be extremely helpful because most of our insulin sensitivity is happening in the muscles. So we need to stimulate the muscles and move throughout the day. Going to the gym for 60 minutes is and then sitting the rest yes, of the 23 hours course. of the day is, is not going to work. Like we can't exercise, but then be sedentary all day. So I'm talking a lot about just like this basic movement. Cause a lot of people, I don't think prioritize that as much. They're like I already went to the gym. I'm super physically active, but they're not really paying attention to how they're working all day and, and what they're doing throughout the day. So those are small things that
2: people can do. I love that you said all there's so much there. There's My so goodness. Much. Like, mm-hmm. first of all, Um, Maura will attest to this when I, when I quit my job to start our business.
1: Well, I warned you remember yeah, right away, like off the bat, I was like, like before it even happened, I was like, be careful yeah, because his job was, you know, pharma rep, which was, well, yeah, I mean, sorry, medical device rep at that point. And all he did was he would get 14,000 steps every single day yeah, because he would more. park far at the hospitals and he was walking all around. And since Danny being is Danny, <laughs> he also would like, he also would do it on purpose. Right. Cause yeah. he would love the activity. And I was yeah. like, oh, you're, mm-hmm. you're sitting all day. I'm like, yes. I had
2: to switch to the stand up yeah. desk. And then like, like what I did, I would do, um, I would do a consults walking and I would use a recording software when I asked them the, my questions. So then, you know, I didn't have to worry about sitting down, you know, typing this up. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you know, the whole sedentary athlete syndrome, you know, there's this other cool thing that I heard, um, on a podcast, it was like an anthropologist talking about how our energy needs, this blew me away. They haven't really, or, or actually our total caloric expenditure, like on average hasn't changed. And the reason why it hasn't changed much, even like going back to like 10, 15,000 years is because back then we were burning all those calories from just that constant movement that you're talking about that Mm -hmm. not only gives us the calorie burn, which is one part of it, but it's also giving us the other benefits that movement brings. And, you know, we burn more calories now just because we're taking in so much information that our brain needs the energy. And I mean, it's like, okay, you're burning those calories, but it's not, it's not the same. It's just not the same. Um, The other thing, like pushing it early, like, I always mention this this study that indicates like how we are diurnal creatures. Like you give someone the same meal at 7 a.m. or 7 p.m., you see different postprandial blood glucose respon- responses. And that's a great indicator. I think a lot of people are so, they're used to seeing either like the late windows or even the 12 to six. Like, mm-hmm. I will say this, it's harder. It's harder to do the earlier window. Um, for me, it's harder. I just I just say like, cut it off at least two to three hours. And then, you know, if you see that your blood, you know, glucose is still elevated in the morning, then maybe like move it, move it an hour earlier. And the other thing, the total energy part of it, like I'm the type of person that like, I'm like, okay, this is ketogenic, right? You know, it's ketogenic, mm-hmm. but like, ask Maura, like I can make fat bombs and I'll put a measuring oh, gosh. cup. Like, and it's like, <laughs> Several well, tablespoons. He, yeah. Of well, he eats oil. all the fat
1: bombs, the cute little fat bombs he made, yeah. and I'm like, don't ever forget what it looked like when you melted it in that big mm-hmm. jar, though because <laughs> yeah. you basically just chug like two cups of oil. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. So, like, I'll I'm like, see... I'm like, of
1: course your ketones are high, duh. Yeah. No. And it's like, and I, I try <laughs> to tell people this
2: too. Like, I tell people this, like, guys, look, look at what I just did. You know, like yeah. I just woke up so with funny. like 5.0 ketones because my body's really good at producing them, but it doesn't mean that I'm healthier. My <laughs> Blood it
1: glucose.
2: doesn't mean I didn't eat. Yeah, a half a <laughs> cup an, of, extra, an extra two calories or something. <laughs> and like the weird thing too is that, like you know, usually we see how there's that inverse relationship between blood glucose and blood ketones. But like on those mornings, I'll wake up with like a 90 milligrams per deciliter blood glucose, and then but my ketones will be like at three or five. And and just so anybody, again, I've told people this a million times. Those ketones are not going to magically do anything for me. And I might not even, they might not even go anywhere. They might be expelled because there's not a, there's no need, right? There's no metabolic need. Yep. So I think all the things you said were were really, really good. And I I just want to add something and I don't mean to disparage your colleagues, but I just think that, <laughs> you know, besides our good friend, Ali Miller, like you are very, very well-informed and very passionate as an RD. And that's, I feel like we need more people like you. I mean, I just, I, I, I really have to tell you that because you know, so many people that are RDs, like I don't want to argue with an RD. I don't want to do that. Like I don't want to say like mm-hmm. my way's better or anything like that, but I just see a lot more digging into the to, to where they're planted. And there's like, you know, there's no movement. There's no like challenging their ideas, you know. I I, I don't know. So I, I just have to 100%. tell 100 percent That's how I
0: felt in the hospital system too. I just felt like the traditional nutrition training I was given was working against me. I was seeing no progress with things we were supposed to be doing. And so that's why it's like, okay, you have to jump ship and try something else. Um, (laughs) So I certainly agree. And if there's any dietitians out here listening to this who are like-minded and also on the same page, (laughs) reach out to me because we're always looking for support group. (laughs)
1: seriously. Oh my gosh, girl, can you please go on TikTok and like, the, the, the diet the tiktok the tiktok dietitians you would you would literally just i can't take it i really yeah. and they get so many views they i get, know they have hundreds of thousands of followers and they're like nothing bashing matters. keto yeah. nothing matters eat a donut and i'm just like i can't i can't i can't I can. you can't no clamping like all this I, stuff i'm just like yeah. i can't deal <laughs> and
0: i i mean not to go on too much of a tangent but i feel like there is this like <laughs> coddling almost like especially in times right now when we're under stress COVID we're using like food as a reward because Mm -hmm. we're coddling people when they're stressed instead of actually helping them like a reward should help you and rewarding with junk food is actually punishment it's not a reward like I'm not trying to be the food police either but we're trying to help people we're not trying to hurt them more so I'm I'm
1: not gonna yeah not going to well, reward. Well, don't Shoot, like, <laughs> we, we've even had to, like, it's like a natural thing to want to do that because let me tell mm-hmm. you, I've wanted to do it even with my kids. And I'm yeah. like, oh, you no, no, we can't do that. Yeah. Time. I'm like, oh, okay. uh, like, we, Danny and I, at one point, we were like, all right, we almost just did that. We almost just got my kid ice cream because they're sad. We're not going to, yeah. Do we cannot. Dude, that's such yeah. a bad lesson that's going to stay with them forever. And they're going to struggle so much. Like you struggle with your yeah. emotional eating. You know
2: what I mean? so
1: it's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Danny, how do you know Danny's stress? Cause there's. You know,
2: when COVID. Oh, more peanut butter yeah. in the jar. When the lockdown started, I was, I was in I the know. middle of my carnivore. I was like, cut, here we go. <laughs> and I, had a, I was. I was hide, all,
1: hide, hide all the foods. Yeah.
2: I woke up a week later and I was like, what happened?
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> we're laughing, but it's such a real thing, and so, yeah, do it like i I understand that temptation because I think it's such a lured behavior in our society that it takes a lot of mental effort to unlearn that and and not do that, but I commend you because it is building bad habits when we use food as a reward or a punishment, and you're you're learning
1: this system that isn't actually beneficial right. Yeah.
2: Seriously yeah, though, Kara. Oh wait. You no, that that's more. it. You that, no, more. it
1: was where, where, where can people find you online? Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been yeah,
2: great. This has been we really could be here really all
1: day. <laughs> yeah. Super fun. Um,
0: yeah, you can find, you know, Nutrisense at Nutrisense.io. I'm most active on Twitter at Cara Collier one. Um, awesome. and then the Nutrisense.io Instagram, I'm putting out a lot of nutrition related glucose related information there. So
2: awesome. Twitter, that's that's a really that's I know. Really I'm like
1: you're hardcore Twitter. I'm like, let's go. <laughs> go to the Twitter.
2: Love it. <laughs> I'm I love gonna follow you wars, on Instagram yeah. too I'm gonna follow you on Instagram too. Why not? Love it. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Carol. Thank you we so really much. appreciate all the yeah. all the knowledge and and all the work you're doing. And we know that this is, you know, let's yeah. let's turn this thing around. I mean, it's gonna be a ground groundswell swell. There's no way it's coming from the top, but let's let's keep moving in direction. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was fun you. <music>